Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. Urban planning is not immune from conspiracy. Uh, the 15-minute city a conspiracy theory has taken hold in um, North America and also in the UK and maybe here, I don't know. We're going to find out um, from Professor Dave Nichols from University of Melbourne. And Dave, 15-minute city sounds like a, a, a concept that's ripe for conspiracy. Yeah, you would think so, wouldn't you? Doesn't it sound awful? Well, uh, it's, it's this concept, <laughs> isn't it, that you should be able to walk or cycle or access most things yeah. you need for day-to-day within yeah. a 15-minute radius, yeah? And look, it's – and it's – I mean, I, I always find these kinds of – this kind of phenomenon fascinating. I mean, I'm sort of I'm, – I'm nominally interested in the 15-minute city, you know, in and of itself, and that's a – that's a long term. That's a that's been around since the 1930s in, under various different names. It's, um, I've heard it called the 20 minute city as well. In Melbourne, we've tended to call it the 20 minute city, and uh-huh. that was uh, state government policy uh, quite a few years ago. Uh, I remember I was on a panel in the Wheeler Centre where um, we were all talking about the 20 minute city, and that was you know that's the Melbourne version, I guess, because Melbourne's you know more Sprawling. spread out, mm. spread yeah. out than most uh, cities in the world. But um, well, it's up there anyway. But um, uh, yeah, exactly. So it's a it's an old old idea and uh, crazy in all kinds of ways uh, to to talk about it in this kind of context of being a government control thing, but also to talk about it as though it's some kind of new you know socialist whatever whatever people are saying. Um, well, can you just... Of, so it might be helpful for those who might not have encountered mm. this online. What exactly is the conspiracy? Like, what, what is being okay. said about right. the 15-minute so, yeah, minutes? No, city? good point, Dylan. Yeah, um, I sort of feel like it's been uh, it's been in the front of my mind for, for the last week or two, so I sort of feel like everybody must know what it what it's all about. But So the 20-minute city... or the, Sorry, the 15-minute city idea, as it's, as it's globally known, is... Um, is that you have all your basic services really close to to home? So you you know you can you have I assume a sort of a, you know a chemist or a, um, if not a supermarket at least somewhere where you can buy food and and maybe a doctor and and uh, things like that um, uh, at least a bike ride away or a, or you know hopefully within walking distance and so on. So the idea that the city can be ideally uh, you know a, a cluster of um, villages so to speak. Uh, so that so that's the that's the idea, and mm. and there are many people have been promoting this notion under various, as I say, since you know for probably around a hundred years, it's been uh, been promoted. Um, so there's so there's that. So the conspiracy is that um, someone has put an extra sort of tweak to this, which is that it's a, it's a control thing that's going to stop you from leaving your neighbourhood. So the the government is going to act the act the government, I guess, is the idea is going to actively um, stop you from going beyond your own little area. Um, you know, f- this fifteen minute zone is mm. like a, a controlling thing. Gee, that um, sounds familiar. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. So there's there's a whole the the extra aspect to this is, uh, and and this certainly hasn't happened in this country to my knowledge, um, that. Uh, the idea of um, controlling um, where people might be able to drive or, or how people might, you know, the times of the day that people might be able to drive, which I assume, and I I haven't seen this written down anywhere, but I assume this has in some ways some connection to that, um, the limitations that are put on driving in London. Uh, so in, in London, um, I can't remember the, the exact details, but there are, there are restrictions on... Um, uh, you know, tourists driving around, um, and also, I mean, access to the city basically with a, a vehicle. Access to the to the central city, to London, yes, that's yeah. a, exactly yes, that's correct. So there's um, now I know there are there've been um, protests in Oxford in the UK mm. in the last week or so, uh, where I think a similar kind of um, program is is being instituted. And there's um, in Canada also there's there's a lot of upset about something I think in Edmonton. Uh, so so it's. It has this kind of this overlay where people are saying, "Look, I'm I'm being prohibited from driving where I want to go," you know, or or perhaps in a way prohibited from going where I want to go, uh, and and that this is a kind of a 
uh, you know, just a general attempt to control populations by governments, socialist or otherwise. It's interesting that this is sort of happening now because, I mean, as you alluded to, Kalia, we, you know, we had limitations on movement through COVID-19 lockdowns in Melbourne and the like, um, and not, of course, all, all cities around the world had the same level of restrictions as, as we did. But is it is it the case that because these different councils, governments around the world are kind of really starting to look at this, that it has led to a kind of coalescence, I suppose, of these different groups looking at the big picture stuff and going, oh, there must be some big conspiracy here because mm. Edmonton's doing it, Oxford's mm. doing it. Mm. Is that why it's, it's mm. sort of taken off? Yeah, well, God only knows, Dylan. I, I, I think it's, um, it's... What I've found interesting is that... Uh, and. Uh, you know, in the last few years, I've I've actually tracked a bit of this kind of stuff where there's similar um, conspiracies. So you know, you get this sense that um, I mean, I guess there's always going to be a section of the population who are going to just like, you know, like just just flying around looking for something to land on mm. that's that's going to fit their criteria. For, you know, their their, their mindset, their pre-existing mindset. So when um, you remember uh, the the bushfires that happened just before COVID settled in, uh, there was there was a burgeoning conspiracy theory that um, that revolved around a couple of things that weren't actually really uh, connected. But um, there was talk at that time. There still is. I mean, there's ongoing talk about the very fast train. You know, the very fast train that goes um, on the east coast of. Uh, Australia doesn't doesn't do it and hasn't you know probably may may not ever in our lifetimes who knows but it's um, it's been talked about for decades now this notion of really super fast train travel in in Australia and um, there was a also a, a an attendant kind of um, suggestion that uh, the very fast train could give rise to some new cities uh, along the mm. uh, you know along those that new train line uh, and. At the time of the bushfires, there were quite a few people uh, on the internet talking about how the government was going to use the bushfires to stop people from living the lives that they chose to live, the, the rural lives, the regional lives that they chose to live, and that um, in the name of bushfire safety, that people would be corralled into these new uh, settlements on very fast train lines uh, and... Uh, you know, just for that kind of the impingement of freedoms, and of course, people were people who lived in rural areas, particularly people who are affected by bushfires, would have been extremely upset about the whole situation anyway. So they were already, um, you know, distressed, uh, extremely yeah. distressed. Of course, they're traumatized. Uh, I don't know whether it was those people who actually come out with this conspiracy theory, but it was, it was, it was there. Um, similarly, I think uh, you will have you probably remember the the ways in which. Uh, there was, I think, in 2020, my um, my colleague at, at the University of Melbourne, um, Victoria Kalankovich, wrote a conversation piece about this. That um, there's a kind of conspiracy. There were conspiracy theories about the tunnels underneath cities, and how they were being used to, um, you know, sort of uh, um, store, in a manner of speaking, uh, kidnap children and stuff like that. So it's like people going, "Oh, there are tunnels underneath the city. Well, there must be some kind of sinister reason for these tunnels." Most of them, of course, are stormwater drains. I mean, some of them are for services and so on. Um, most of them are too narrow to, you know, to really put people in, you know, for any period of time. Thanks for clarifying that. Yeah, well, I think it needs to be said. In some, for some people, it needs to be said. But um, it's a uh, – so there's, there's a kind of, um, I guess, a, a distrust. I think it's a distrust, you know, it's broadly speaking, it's a distrust of government. Yeah. Um, it's a distrust of planning as a, I guess, an arm of government, or as you know, something that's that's often or usually pressed into the service of government. So, um, just this, you know, I mean, in, you know, I think there are. It's another case of, um, you know, and planning obviously is just one example of this, but where uh, a particular um, practice or, um, you know. Um, you know, set of programs or whatever. Um, if you don't really understand what it's about, or you de- or you detach it from the broader purpose and, and ideology, then you can, uh, and you have a predisposition to find it to to look for sinister things. Then um, you can, you know, uh, start to get upset about um, the the you know even something as simple as as infrastructure. Infrastructure, by the way, which if it wasn't there, um, you you'd know about it pretty fast. 
Yeah, um, Professor Dave Nichols is with us. We're talking about urban planning conspiracy theories, as we do, on The Grapevine with Carly and Dylan. Uh, hope your Monday's going well. And I, I think, I mean, I assume because it's called the 15-minute city conspiracy theory and doesn't say 20-minute city conspiracy theory, it's not taking root here mm. yet. Don't, don't bet on it. I, I, no. I, I don't know that, actually. Um, I think that... Because we'd be ripe for it, wouldn't we, because some of the things that the, the fear the fear mongers uh, in other places are talking about actually sort of happened here with curfews and, and so forth yeah. through COVID. So it has that fertile ground, but the idea that something ostensibly to improve people's 5K K radius or 10K radius, I, um, I, I think is quite an interesting... I, I suspect idea. that people in let's say, in Melbourne. I mean, that was the, Vic- the Victorian version was the 20-minute city. Mm. Um, I suspect that people who have a, uh, a tendency towards that kind of conspiracy thing, they don't, they don't just go... They don't apply it to a local situation. They see it as, I think... Um, just generalised said. They look at it yeah. in a kind of global yeah. sense anyway. Yeah. So the 15-minute city was the, you know, is the, the, the usual way that it's... it's what do you think the, then for urban planners? Because a lot of the... You know, when when something seems to be ripe for conspiracy theory, it sort of demands, um, I don't know, um, different kind of communication maybe from from proponents of an idea. Do you think that might be what will happen in Oxford and other places, that it's not about uh, restricting travel, it's about improving cities or, you know, whatever Mm. the communication might be? Well, uh, you know, poor old planners. As as I've often said on the show, I'm not I'm not a planner. Never worked as a planner. I'm just teaching and planning. Yeah. Mm. Um, and um, I kind of um, I, I feel sorry for them in lots of ways. Uh, and I think that they, you know, one of the major um, tools that a planner needs to to develop. I start teaching today, by the way. So I'm about to meet the you know the, the latest the cohort of yeah, yeah. Hello to any Dave Nichols students listening. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'll. Be, I'll say hello to them uh, myself soon enough uh, but yes um, they uh, you know they, so they have to they have to develop this kind of you know ability to communicate ideas and to bring people on board yeah. and to bring people in in a consultative way so you know I think that uh, a big part of what planners often end up doing is meeting with the commu- with communities and saying well this is what we need to do how do you suggest we get there um, I think that there's there's often often a case. This is you know that that keyboard warrior thing is it's often people who feel already feel completely detached from from society anyway. So they're not going to go along to some meeting, yeah, uh, and and hear what needs to be you know hear what the problems are and and ask what they think needs to be done. They've they've opted out of that. They've they've gone you know bigger picture on that and um, you know. And I, th- I think, as you say, there's a big international component here. I think, you know, Jordan Peterson tweeted something out about this conspiracy Fabulous. theory as yeah. well. So it's this network of people who drum up this um, uh, kind of drama around these, these concepts and, you know, aligned with sort of the freedom fighter movement and that kind of thing as well. But, I mean, there have been protests against this in cities around the world, though. So, I mean, do you think this will be just a bit of a, a flash in the pan, something that's popped up now and will go away soon, or will it have enduring resonance? Mm, yeah, yeah, well, let's let's see. I, I think that, um, you know, planning has often had, had the problem of, um, you know, n- not having this kind of unified um, uh, voice, and I think planners are often, you know, faced with a kind of difficulty of, con- you know, conveying their, their general ideas and principles, uh, partly because they don't necessarily have unified principles. Uh, and so, um, you know, if you, uh, if I were a planner, I, I might see this as an opportunity to, for, to, to educate. Uh, but you, um, you can see these things, um, they really do take on a life of their own very quickly. And, mm. of course, as everybody said, um, uh, someone, I think, from um, the University of New South Wales, I can't remember the name, unfortunately, but a built environment um, person at uh, UNSW was, you know, said something in the paper last week about how, you know, um, he ne- he could never in his wildest dreams have imagined that this batshit crazy theory would have popped up and... Um, it's uh, it's it's come from nowhere, so will it go back to nowhere? Uh, we, we shall see. Yeah, well, just some sort of intel based on your question earlier, Carly. I have had a text in from a listener who works for Victorian government planning and apparently 
um, uh, last year, the website's comment section was deluged with comments from conspiratorial types. So they're, you know, obviously. So it is happening here. Yeah, yes, I heard mm. about that. Yeah, there, there, there are a lot of people, but but it's and it's not just it's, but it's not just twenty minute city stuff. It's I, I, I gather it's also um, there's just a general, you know, it's, it's that distrust of. I guess uh, there'd be a lot of people whose only real uh, interaction with anybody called a you know a council planner or whatever would be someone telling them you know you can't build that yeah or, you know those kinds of things so it's so it already seems like uh, there's there's a kind of um, you know uh, a body uh, you know an official body that's dedicated to impinging on your freedoms. You know, it made me think when you mentioned. The bushfires and a lot of people are still recovering from those, but also we've had flooding and so forth. And there is this very live discussion around the country about areas that perhaps people shouldn't have been permitted to build on previously, and maybe we should reconsider those areas. And that that would be frightening for people that live in those places, hey? And so this idea of um, one, it might be in the best interests of, of communities and in individuals in the longer term, but in the near term, mm. that would be pretty confronting conversation to be having. Uh, look. Without a doubt, there's and there's there's a whole there's a whole extra range of um, you know I'm thinking for instance of people who buy um, buy land in the hope that it'll be rezoned and you know sort of put a whole lot of um, faith in the notion that uh, progress will mean that eventually you know the city will reach this part of the world and um, and our land will be you know given this different status and suddenly it'll be worth you know ten times as much and you know um, parents tell their children you know when you're you know after I die you've got this little package and one day it'll be worth a huge amount of money and it never is those kinds of things where it's like oh the planners are just like out to get me they're not not letting this happen you know they're they're in the way and they're um, you know as I, as I've always said you know planners are really just in most cases you know obviously planners have their own um, you know capacities and and abilities and their and their own their, their various tools but usually they're they're doing the bidding of you know their employers you know be they bureaucracies or you know councils or um, governments or whomever uh, so uh, they're, they're really just the, you know that the messengers that get shot but yeah you better go and train some more of them then I'm looking forward to it yeah <laughs> <laughs> professor Dave Nichols back to teaching at the University of Melbourne today off to um, arm the next generation of urban planners uh, it's great speaking to you and catch you again in a month thanks very much you're listening to a triple R podcast discover more podcasts from triple R exploring science technology food books social issues politics and more to listen hit up the triple R website or your favorite podcast platform Last week, Russian President Vladimir Putin, in an address time for the one-year anniversary of his invasion of Ukraine, said Russia was suspending participation in the New START nuclear weapon treaty, and that's a treaty with the US, and limits the number of warheads each country can hold and allows them to inspect each other's nuclear sites. To help us understand more how serious suspending this treaty is, we've asked Associate Professor Tillman Rush, uh, Ruff to join us. He's founder of Nobel Peace Prize winning ICANN, the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons, uh, which hopefully we can catch up on as well. It's great to have you with us, Tillman. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me, Carter and Dylan. And so what what does this Russian suspension of the New START nuclear weapon treaty mean, do you think? Well, it really means what they want it to mean because there's actually no provision in the treaty to suspend the obligations of either country under the treaty. So this is not something that has a firm legal foundation. Um, the treaty was concluded in 2010 by Presidents Obama and Medvedev at the time, and it caps the total number of strategic deployed nuclear weapons um, from both sides to 1,550 on 700 delivery vehicles. So... Strategic weapons are basically big ones that are designed to travel over very long distances. They're delivered either by intercontinental ballistic missiles that are either fired from silos on land or from submarines at sea, or they can be delivered by heavy bombers you know, that fly large distances. So strategic is really just the way that they're delivered and the distances that they carry. It doesn't mean they're any different kind of nuclear weapon. They tend to be a bit bigger on average than the ones that are intended for sort of shorter range, more battlefield use. 
but that's the definition. The deployed means they're actually, you know, on submarines loaded into silos, you know, on planes ready to go. Um, so that is the last remaining treaty that constrains in any way these two largest nuclear arsenals that between them contain more than 90% of the world's nuclear weapons. How significant... There were a range of, of other treaties that, you know, capped, eliminated all short and medium-range land-based missiles, for example, the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty. There were a couple... And that one and, and another important Open Skies one were previously abandoned by the US first and then abrogated by Russia as well. Yeah. So this treaty is really important because it's the last one. And it was just really saved by a hair's breadth because the Russians were willing to renew it when it was due to expire um, last year. But the Trump administration was not. And so one of the first things President Biden did within a couple of days of coming to office was re-extend it. Otherwise, it would have expired. But it's due to, it, it'll last for the next, um, till 2026, uh, unless they negotiate a replacement. And so it's significant in that it's the last sort of remaining treaty of, of that sort. But, I mean, the, the, the number of nuclear warheads that are able to be deployed even under that treaty, like, if, you know, if even one of those were actually used, I imagine the consequences would be pretty catastrophic. So what, what purpose sort of has it served and, and what purpose could it serve? Well, it's really important because it's enforceable. There are procedures that keep the two sides engaged and transparent. They have to make declarations a couple of times a year about exactly what weapons they've got where. They can ex inspect each other's facilities, and they regularly do or did until recently. They have a mechanism, a commission that's created to discuss any disputes. So it basically keeps a level of transparency so that they know what the other side is doing. It keeps corridors of communication open. Um, and from that point of view, it's, it's really important in increasing the stability and the lack of, I guess, the tendency to, for, for brinkmanship and to respond, you know, in, in to the worst possible scenario. It doesn't make the world safe from nuclear weapons, um, but it has been a really important thing because... You know, at the height of the Cold War, there were 70,000 nuclear weapons. Mm. There are now just under 13,000. Uh, it's still enough to, you know, destroy our beautiful planet many times over. But it's a very important trend in the right direction. Um, and if you're going to, you know, make progress on disarmament, if you're going to go further in the right direction, as we must, uh, urgently, then, you know, the first thing to do is to, to stop going in the wrong direction and put caps on on the on the current arsenals it's been estimated that because of the reserve weapons that both sides have so not weapons that are actually in bases you know loaded onto planes or missiles um, if new start was dismantled and not replaced then both sides could effectively double their arsenals in a pretty short uh, time you know that would accentuate essentially restart a nuclear arms race and, and put us even in a more dangerous situation than now. So do you share, uh, Tillman, fears that that what's happening at the moment with regards to the Russian president saying that they're going to suspend um, this their involvement with this treaty, that it will lead to a new arms race? Well, it, we already kind of are in one. You know, the, the numbers are going up for the first time since the Cold War in the last uh, year or two, to numbers of deployed weapons and military stockpiles are going up. And, and all sides are investing massively, not just in keeping the weapons that they have, but in perfecting new ones. The Russians in particular are, are deploying a whole range of weapons that we haven't seen before, hypersonic uh, weapons that can travel extraordinarily quickly, nuclear-powered cruise missiles, you know, underwater uh, nuclear torpedoes, um, weapons that we haven't seen before. So, you know, we're not in a good place, but this is just, you know, one more nail in the coffin of a very fragile but vital regime that has capped uh, the numbers and type and kept the two sides in closer contact than they would be without it. 
And this is happening in the context of the, the nuclear weapons ban treaty that, of course, was, was led by ICANN and it's led to being ratified by many countries around the world. I mean, how do you see that, um, I suppose, on a global scale, the fact that there are this, you know, these new and, and very dangerous weapons being developed while so many countries around the world have committed to abolishing nuclear, nuclear weapons and, and putting some level of pressure on those nuclear armed states? Yeah, there's really two sort of countervailing trends. Uh, unfortunately, most of what's happening in terms of threats and the weapons and you know, lack of progress on disarmament is taking us into a more dangerous place. And the Ukraine, the Russian invasion of Ukraine and, and the associated repeated nuclear threats associated with that, Russia essentially trying to get rid of this brutal, you know, essentially cover this uh, utterly illegal and brutal invasion under cover of, you know, impunity that they hope they get from their nuclear weapons and threatening to use them. So there's lots of things that are going in the wrong direction. The really important good news story, the one thing that's really going in the right direction is this, as you mentioned, the ban treaty that's the first to prohibit nuclear weapons and provide an actual pathway for, for how to get rid of them. The number of states that have joined that continues to grow, 92 signatures now and, and 68 states that are formally legally bound by it. Uh, that continues to grow. Um, Australia is committed by National Labor Party policy, unanimously adopted in 2018 and reaffirmed in 2021 to join that treaty. We've seen some some small but positive steps in that direction. We really need more rapid progress towards that that goal. Um, I think the important role that the treaty has playing so far in the current crisis is to really help to delegitimise nuclear weapons and to make it clear that any leader that used them you know, would be an absolute pariah and the rest of the world would respond very quickly, very strongly. The treaty states, when they met at their first meeting since the treaty entered into legal force last year, made a really strong declaration, probably the strongest international declaration ever made about the unacceptability of any threat or use or possession of nuclear weapons. And I think that's helped to make, in a whole lot of other contexts, from places and people that you wouldn't really expect um, to say that nuclear weapons mustn't be used. Uh, that happened at the uh, Non-Proliferation Treaty Review Conference last year. 147 countries said that nuclear weapons must never be used. NATO, for the first time, the Secretary-General late last year said any use of nuclear weapons would be absolutely unacceptable. Uh, you know, German Chancellor Schultz, President Xi Jinping a couple of times have said, uh, you know, opposed the use or threat of use of nuclear weapons. The G20 leaders in Bali in November said the use or threat of use of nuclear weapons is inadmissible. Um, and, and China, again, in its um, fairly vague but important, I think, proposal for resolving the Ukraine crisis just last week said again that nuclear weapons must not be used and nuclear wars must not be fought. So I think the treaty is already, apart from helping to drive divestment from nuclear weapons-making companies is already helping really strengthen that international norm to say very clearly uh, that nuclear weapons must not be used, which, of course, the next logical step, well, if we can't use them, Why then, have... we mustn't, then, then we need to get rid of Why them. Why have them? Uh, uh, Tillman Ruff is yeah. with us, uh, co-founder of ICANN, and ICANN really well, led the... Um, uh, the momentum and uh, behind the treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons, which Sean Tillman's just been running us through. And, and, and can we talk a little bit more about Australia, Tillman? Because as, as you just mentioned that uh, Australia, you know, hasn't yet signed or ratified that treaty, but is, it, that's looking more promising. And I guess at the same time, we've, we've signed up to these, you know, nuclear submarines, which I know is a bit different. But I mean, how do you see Australia's role right now and what what could a positive role look like in, in the current context when we've got the suspension of the, of the New START treaty between Russia and, um, and the US? Yes, Australia has a, has a really important potential 
role to play, and particularly having a government and a leader, a prime minister, who personally is very strongly committed to, to that policy. Anthony Albanese was the one who moved the policy that, that Labor sign and ratify the, the ban treaty when in government. Um, it's really vital that Australia make a positive contribution. At the moment, we have a couple of bob each way, and frankly, we're on the wrong side of history. Uh, while we claim to be you know, good guys on disarmament, um, and we've certainly been pretty good on non-proliferation and very strongly opposed to nuclear testing, especially in our region, um, you know, we claim protection from nuclear weapons. We say that the weapons of the US keep us safe. I mean, the idea that indiscriminate weapons of mass destruction could keep anybody safe is completely against all the evidence. But we provide support and potential assistance through facilities on our soil that that are involved in the command and control and potential targeting of nuclear weapons. So we need to, to stop that, um, just as we have stopped any cooperation or any uh, plans to acquire other weapons of mass destruction, chemical and biological weapons. We've disagreed with our major ally, the US, on a couple of the other indiscriminate weapons like landmines and cluster munitions. Australia has signed those treaties to ban them. The US hasn't. We've figured out ways of cooperating militarily. It's very clear that it's perfectly possible to join the ban treaty and still have an active military alliance with a nuclear-armed state, provided that country is not directly involved in any way in nuclear weapons. And some of our allies in the region, New Zealand, the Philippines and Thailand, have already ratified the Nuclear Weapons Ban Treaty and have enjoyed, you know, continuing uninterrupted military cooperation with the US. The US has just uh, concluded an agreement with the Philippines to expand its its military operations and, and storage facilities there. So this is not a question of, you know, abandoning the US alliance, but of leaving behind weapons of mass destruction that are completely immoral and, and serve no, can serve no useful or legitimate military purpose. So at the moment we're doing a number of things with these escalating tensions and, and, and worrying talk of, you know, essentially beating a war drum with China that we've we heard particularly from the previous government. Um, there's increasing alignment and interoperability, as, as Defence Minister Richard Miles has talked about, of Australian and US military forces with potentially US nuclear-capable B-52s being stationed at Tyndall um, and the nuclear-powered submarines if we acquire them, while they have potential proliferation concerns related to them. Um, all of those developments make it even more important uh, that Australia very clearly repudiate nuclear weapons. And by far the most effective way to do that, to make it clear that the submarines are not the thin end of the wedge to having nuclear weapons stationed or even, heaven forbid, acquired here, and to make sure that the B-52s are not nuclear capable, the ones that come here, uh, not carrying nuclear weapons, would be to sign the ban treaty. That would be the most effective way that we could demonstrate that we're committed to non-nuclear defence. Yeah, let's wait and see how the government manages that. And, and just um, quickly and lastly, Tim, when we're, we're almost out of time, but to cycle back to the New START Treaty, I mean, I mean, how do you you imagine that Russia suspending that might impact dynamics in the, the sort of Russia-Ukraine war and crisis um, in, in the coming months and potentially years? It's hard to see how specifically that could make a, a difference in that conflict. I mean, Russia's nuclear threats and sabre-rattling in relation to that, essentially to try and scare NATO to keep out, um, will continue. But it, happily, the United States has reacted, I think, very calmly and has said they will stick uh, with the uh, treaty limits, as they should, and they should absolutely not give Russia any excuse to claim that, you know, to abandon the treaty entirely. Even though the Russian president uh, and then the Russian parliament approved the suspension, um, the foreign ministry has said that they will abide by the limits uh, that, the, that the treaty um, provides. So it's really important that, that that, you know, last remaining constraint on those massive arsenals uh, is preserved and that they begin talking. And happily, the US 
has said that, you know, whatever else is going on in our relationship, we're willing to to negotiate nuclear arms reductions. And I think that's what needs to happen. These times of crisis are exactly the moment to step up to reduce the danger, not say it's all too hard and let it get worse. Thanks, Tillman. It's um, amazing to speak with you this morning. Such a wealth of knowledge and uh, direct people to the ICANN website if they want to find out more about any of those things. Uh, And we'll catch you again soon, I hope. Thanks very much, Collier and Dylan. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. And the stories coming out of the Royal Commission into the robo-debt scheme are con- confronting, they're heartbreaking, and what they have done is allow more of us to bear witness to the human costs of what has become an increasingly punitive welfare system in Australia. But it's not only um, that part of the Australian welfare state that has um, provided or does provide conditional payments to carers and parents and others who rely on government payments to meet basic needs. Um, there are other parts too, the cashless debit card, which was canned by the Albanese government government and the Parents Next program. Um, they're two examples that Eve Vincent has studied for her book, Who Cares? Life on Welfare in Australia. And it's great to have Eve back on Triple R. Very good morning to you, Eve. Hello. Thanks. Great to be with you. And I, I wanted to raise robo-debt, even though, I mean, you do um, touch on it in this book, but it's not the focus of the book. But the more we hear, Eve, uh, about that scheme, which, you know, is largely illegal, um, the more that we kind of get a sense of what life on welfare can be like for people. Can you sort of, you know, maybe give us your view on, on the robo-debt scheme and, and what it's telling us before we start to get into some of these other schemes you've had a look at? Mm, yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right that robo-debt's very significant and I think it can be understood as the logical endpoint of the historical processes that I trace in the book, which are a sort of, you know, incremental shifting towards a welfare system that places more conditions on the receipt of social security, that shifts from a kind of social understanding of poverty as a social problem to a model of, you know, poverty is an individual problem. It's a question of individual behaviour change, redesigning the welfare state so that it's very focused on individual behaviour change, a welfare state, and a welfare state that becomes more punitive, that involves more surveillance. I mean, robo-debt's so revealing, the Royal Commission's you know, really revealing of the contempt, the disdain uh, in in which, you know, people who need state support are are viewed. And the two welfare measures that you focus on in the book very much highlight those issues and experiences coming out of, um, you know, surveillance and, and I suppose a real lack of control over, over how to spend money as well when people are often doing it quite tough. The cashless debit card and Parents Next are the two welfare measures you focus on. Could you just explain for us what those two welfare measures are and, and also why you decided to focus on them? Mm, sure. I mean, they're actually very different and in a way, for me, that it was helpful that they were different because they sort of, they're both instructive, they both illuminate certain features of the contemporary welfare system, but different features. So the cashless debit card, I mean, that was very controversial, very high profile, quite an extreme policy experiment that uh, definitely sort of uh, targeted Aboriginal Australians. Um, I did field work in the first trial site. So the cashless... Uh, debit card quarantined 80% of um, welfare recipients' payments onto a card. The card was integrated with the FPOS system and the card was blocked from purchases, in, you know, alcohol, gambling, and then 20% would be deposited into a recipient's bank account as per normal and could be withdrawn as cash. Then parents next, my second case study, it's very different. It's taught me much more about, I guess, gender and um, the ways in which the Australian welfare state thinks about gender and also particularly about care labour. Uh, so it's, you know, it's a more ambiguous program, I think, because it is framed as giving support to particularly single mums. So it's 
recipients of parenting payment, but it, it disproportionately affects single mums. Um, and they, uh, they, it's a compulsory requirement that they participate in a program where they sign a participation plan, they agree to a weekly activity, and they are sort of monitored as to whether or not they complete that activity and if they are seen not to have completed it, so they don't log on to the app and, and tick off that they've completed it that week, then their payment, you know, their sole source of income in many cases, how they feed their kids, that that payment um, can, can be stopped and there's been really high rates of payment suspension associated with that program. Gee, and, and I mean, with the cashless debit card, that's no longer with us, that one. But can you tell us a little bit about your, your fieldwork in Seduna in South Australia where you say it was one of the, the, well, the place where it was started to roll out? I mean, the, the policy was considered racist and, um, and that bears out in the numbers of, of, of people from different communities that were involved with it and the like. But, I mean, what was the effect in, in Seduna and other places with regards to that card being rolled out, what was the effect on people's lives that, that you found? Yeah, I, I mean, I recorded lots of stories of people sort of first hearing about the card through reading about it in the local paper, being sent it in the mail, a lot of bewilderment initially and a very strong feeling among my research participants that the consultation that had taken place did not involve them, that their voices hadn't been heard. Then... As you were sort of saying, in opening a sense of a loss of control, that's something, their own decision-making around their finances, how to run their households, uh, had been taken away from them. I talked to a lot of people about shame. Um, you know, some of my research participants evoked this very powerfully, sort of telling me these stories of feeling self-conscious and awful, handing over their card in the bakery or in the supermarket and you know, becoming this really heightened awareness of others' eyes on them, what they might be assuming. I, I do talk in the book about shame as very complex, as cultural, as shaped by history. It was also really interesting to me that some people didn't feel shame. They shrugged off shame. They redirected shame. I, I explored that some cultural contexts don't attach any shame to unemployment or to poverty. You know, these are shared circumstances. Lots of people talked to me about getting used to the card. That was a really big theme, um, but I think it's an interesting one because it raises the question of did people adapt to life on the card or did they adapt the card to fit their lives? And lots of stories about the latter, sharing cards, getting around the card that sort of thing. Yeah, and I mean, this book is very much centred in the individual's stories and their experiences of, of, of using being on the cashless debit card and Parents Next as well. To what extent did the stories that you heard maybe, I don't know, challenge your preconceptions or, or um, reflect kind of a, a diversity of experience um, in ways that maybe you hadn't considered before starting this uh, research project? Yeah, I think I was interested in seeing things from the perspective of those who are really living this out. Uh, so one of the aspects of that was that I didn't want to kind of reduce people's experiences so that I saw them or define them as welfare recipients. So mm. I generally talk to people, you know, about their analysis of the welfare system, their experience of the welfare system, but I also talk to people much more broadly and kind of fluidly about their whole lives, uh, where they would, you know, ideally direct their energies, their aspirations, their working lives in the past, the things that they were doing with their time. So I guess I maybe didn't anticipate that that theme of uh, care would become so prominent. Obviously, it's really there with Parents Next. These are, you know, some of these compulsory participants have babies as young as nine months old and they're required to, you know, be a part of a program that implies that parenting is inactivity, that they are not participating in society until they sign this participation plan, this instrument. Um, so obviously kind of seeing and valuing and developing a language around the activity they were doing, which is caring for, for children was really important to me and, and more obvious. But even within the cashless debit card, I actually found that a lot of people I talked to had really kind of extensive and distributed care responsibilities, 
to their kin, to sick relatives. They were running households on, you know, incredibly, you know, in incredibly demanding circumstances. Um, so th that theme, it became so present for so many of us during the pandemic and I'm very in the book. Uh, you know, I do write myself into it and, and care was this sort of huge theme of my life over that time but I could see it as a huge theme in, in the lives of many of the people I was working with. We're speaking with author Eve Vincent about her book, Who Cares? Uh, Life on Welfare in Australia. And Eve, I really, that, I mean, I took a lot from, from this uh, about care and about the sort of, you know, in inverted commas, the, the care economy, because it feels like there's a couple of parallel conversations happening in Australia. On one hand, you know, professional women, CEO women and, and, and the like, it, um, you know, we're seeing an increase in the, the, the number of weeks that, that um, working families um, get with paid parental leave, for instance, and this idea of connection to work and um, the, the importance of women in the workforce and that product you know, productivity depends on it, all these sorts of things happening on one hand, but on the other with what you've uncovered is those that are doing a really huge amount of the caring are on these, yeah, very punitive um, payments. Uh, and so we've got a, a double, it feels like a, yeah, a parallel conversation happening where the perhaps the, the welfare system itself isn't really keeping up with contemporary discussions around what caring means um, for for you know, even for the economy, if we just take it down to that, would you would you say that you observe something like that yourself, or how would you see that? Yeah, no, I think that's a good insight. I mean, I think there are these a couple of larger conversations that my book could be seen to be a part of. One is definitely around a kind of crisis of care, how we regard care. A lot of the people I interviewed who were at that time not doing waged work had in the past and probably again in the future would be doing this really low wage uh, sort of wage care work. That is the, the, the work that they were sort of oriented to, that some of the, the pre-employment program they're in was redirecting, the, re, redirecting them back into. So that's, you know, that, that seems to me such a pressing social issue that the most important work, you know, among the most important work in our society, we're distributing onto um, people and not valuing it, not paying it properly. That, that's got a high profile at the moment. I think there's also this kind of crisis of work that the book speaks to, uh, that some people are looking for more wage work, that many of us are doing too much wage work. What is work? What is what is, you know, what can we do that is beyond work, um, you know, outside of work? Uh, so I think there are these kind of larger scale issues that, that, I, that I am kind of picking up on as much as it's a very kind of micro book. It's really about everyday life and experience and everyday patterns of speech as well, very much so. Yeah, I mean, there's there's so many huge questions that the book taps into. Um, one of the the stories um, that that I found sort of really interesting was um, Lally, an, an African refugee, who settled in Brisbane when she was ten, and and talks to you about the idea of system privilege, where she has a background in advocacy and knows how to navigate the system, knows what kinds of records to keep to make sure that, you know, when she is dealing with um, with Centrelink and the like, that, that she can get the most out of it, I suppose. And, you know, that shouldn't be a skill that people need to have. But a lot of people who begin engaging with Centrelink, you know, might not know exactly how to navigate the system. And it is incredibly bewildering for anyone who's experienced it before. It can be really confusing and, you know, your welfare payments can be cut off suddenly if you haven't met some kind of requirement. So given that um, I suppose the government is, you know, currently conducting a review of Parents Next, the cashless debit card is no more. Do you see that we are starting to have a more mature conversation about what, what welfare can and should do, not just in terms of those big picture questions, but how the system actually can deliver on the purpose that it's designed for? Mm. Uh, yeah, Lally was such an incredible interviewee in terms of her insights about um, why it is she's been able to kind of wring resources out of these programs. And, and you know, the same program has really only induced anxiety in, in other of my interviewees. I think the welfare system is under scrutiny right now. I think a lot of 
credit needs to go to anti-poverty activists who have, you know, really built up a profile and a voice um, over the last sort of five to ten years. Um, obviously, this huge, you know, robo-debt uh, has, has brought the system into view, as you said, in opening. A few other things, I think, particularly the very stingy, miserable, unlivable rate of, of the job seeker payments, um, you know, has become sort of untenable in, in public opinion. Uh, the Albanese government is looking at a few aspects of the welfare system. They have, they're, they're conducting like quite a broad inquiry into Workforce Australia, which is the, the latest iteration of this very privatised employment services uh, system that we have now. And as part of that, they did devote attention to Parents Next. So it'll be really interesting to see what they conclude. I think the new Economic Advisory Committee will put pressure on the Albanese government to raise the job seeker rate in the May budget. I think we all need to put pressure on the Albanese government to raise the rate in the May budget. I think, I think this issue is getting the attention it needs right now. What will come of that it remains to be seen. And I mean, what I mean, have you stayed in touch with the people that you interviewed, or some of them, Eve, for for the book? I mean, what is there? Do you have a sense of what came next for people when, say, the cashless debit card was removed? Yeah, I'm in touch with lots of people. I mean, people's lives. You know, some of this research was done quite a while ago now, and particularly the first case study, the cashless debit card case study. Parents Next was a bit more recent, but even then, life moves so fast when kids are little and then suddenly they're at school and, and things move on. Uh, look, it's a real mix. Uh, some people's lives have really turned around in terms of the circumstances they're in when I encounter them. Some people, um, you know, I'd say that their lives were already really challenging and it, it's like things just kept getting thrown at them. And a lot of people talked about the card or Parents Next being one more thing that was thrown at them in a life that was very much defined by, you know, things things coming at people and them having to constantly adapt, adjust, cope. And and so other people I'm in touch with, their lives aren't as, you know, aren't very different than when, when I first met them. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, the way that you end... Your book is, you know, really speaking to the life experience of the, the current Prime Minister and, you know, fingers crossed that the, the very positive experience he and his mother had um, in Australia with the kind of care system we had then um, can be repeated by more people um, in, with, if changes come our way. So, yeah, got our fingers crossed there. Thanks, Eve. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show, and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.